Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn of Cruise Consulting. And before we get to just a fantastic podcast with Riley Brennan of Trucks, I just want to give a quick shout out. Uh, one, to Cruise Consulting, the startup accounting firm that I work at and which does a just incredible job on monthly financials, taxes, including R&D tax credits, uh, valuations, anything you need, financial modeling, geez, we, we do everything. Give us a shout if you need some help. And then also a, uh, a good big shout out to Gusto for doing R&D tax credits. They're letting all of our clients and all the other startups out there uh, use R&D tax credits, apply it against payroll taxes, and get a ton of money back. So I think Gusto is the only payroll provider doing this for payroll taxes, um, letting startups apply those R&D tax credits. So it takes a lot of work. Gusto is doing a great job with it. And, uh, and just a big shout out. This is going to be a, a material amount of money for our clients to get back. So thank you, Gusto. And now on to a podcast with Riley Brennan of Trucks. He's just an incredible VC, knows the transportation space cold, and also is just a really nice guy. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very, very special guest today is Riley Brennan from Trucks. Welcome, Riley. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so uh, Riley and I have been friends for a long time, introduced by Ed Ayton, the CEO of Merch Bar, also podcast guest. That was actually one of my best ones. That was. I think, yeah, I won't even try to top that one. <laughs> Ed Ayton takes number one. I'm going to try to go for number two here. He's amazing. So Riley, maybe, so Riley's a VC, also a friend. Uh, maybe tell everyone kind of about Trucks and, and how you got here. Sure. I started a fund with a couple partners, Jeff and Kate, uh, a couple years ago called Trucks. And um, we invest in early stage companies that are changing the future transportation. So my love and passion is the transportation world uh, writ large. So our role is really to help very early stage founders assess risk. And when they're building a company, we help them with financing, but we also help them maybe find a co-founder, um, work out some early issues, and it's really fun to do that at the early stage. It's kind of God's work because I say this, it's very easy to, not easy, but it's easier to be a late stage venture capitalist and write like a $10 million check and you kind of, nothing's ever easy, right? You're, you're shaking your head kind of. I mean, it's, it's, it's. I mean, the majority of the work is borne by the founder, right? But the decision to invest at different stages, I think in some ways the venture industry is a bit of a misnomer when you say early stage investing and late stage is so different yeah. that it almost feels like a different species, you know? That's what I was trying to say. Because, and you said it perfectly, you're closer to the founder at, and the founder does most of the work, mm -hmm. at the, especially at the early stage. So being the partner slash advisor at the seed stage where you guys are is, is really hard and it's, it's, it's tough. It's like it's, you're doing like real, real work and you're really helping these people versus writing a, the, the checks help huge and going to the board meetings, helping with recruiting at the later stage really do help. But like this is where the foundation of the company, the blueprint of the company is all set. Yeah. And the, also I think, you know, no, not knowing what the risks are is one of the, I think that's where the, the real value is either from if you're an investor or if you're a founder. And that's one of the things I think that we've gotten much better at since starting our fund is 
actually don't think founders realize sometimes the kind of risks that are out there. Yeah. And in, in the transportation space, particularly with an automobile, there's a lot of different ones that you need to think about, whether it's like the regulatory risk, which is also an opportunity. And also if you're going to sell into the big supply chain and sell into automakers and suppliers, there's a lot of risk with that, which can also be eliminated really quickly depending on who you, you know, how you're sort of forming the product. And can so you explain that a little bit though, both those, those are the two that popped into my head. Like how do you sell to the big boys mm -hmm. and how do you navigate the regulatory frameworks? Sure. And like, how do you, like, what are those risks? Like, how do you, how do people manage this stuff? Well, so on the regulatory side, the most fascinating thing right now is that there's a lot of enthusiasm for autonomous vehicles and not a lot of knowledge. Yeah. And that has created this fairly unique to this period of time. And I would say from today for the next roughly three years, there's a very wide open, porous kind of, you know, environment where you can talk to a senator or you can talk to somebody in a foreign government who's thinking about this policy and who's authoring the policy. So in a way, at the moment, the regulatory environment is a BD environment. Yeah. If, you're, if you have a, a startup that's doing something really fundamental for autonomous vehicles, it, it almost is, it's just pragmatic to think about regulatory issues. Now, it's malleable too, right? Like that's kind of what you're saying. Like it, you're, the, the, the official from another country is actually... They're talking to you, but they're also soliciting your opinion, right? hundred yeah. percent. And, and, you know, some of it is starting to get, uh, more baked. So in the U S there's no, f uh, definitive federal, federal policy at the moment. There are some States that are actually further along than others. Some States are choosing to follow other States, Michigan and California being two examples that have kind of set the tone for some other States. And overall, you, if you're starting one of these companies, you can actually look at that map and pick where you want to do a deployment. So that's an interesting opportunity. The risk is that at some point, there's, you're, you're operating in a state which changes its policy or federally something happens that significantly impacts your business. So those are huge risks. But if you can get to a conversation with those policymakers, it's, it can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Is there, is there going to be a federal, like, how is that going to work? Cause I do, I see like Arizona and the Uber and Pittsburgh and stuff happening in California and Michigan. Like you said, like, are, are the federal folks watching what's happening? Is it like a bunch of, sometimes it's very helpful to have a bunch of different science experiments going on and mm -hmm. then the federal folks can look and see what's working and what's not working. Is that how the approach they're taking? Well, I would say the change in administration didn't help the timeline for the feds because the previous administration, specifically the head of DOT and NHTSA, Mark Rosekind and, and uh, Anthony Fox, were very much trying to figure out federal level, not necessarily laws at the moment, but they, by the time they were out, they had some recommendations and were really pushing the discussion pretty far mm. from a federal level and thinking very wisely about that. Of course, now there's new administration you know, there's a new head of DOT. There's the NHTSA position isn't filled yet. As this happens in the U.S., like during these big changes, unfortunately, sometimes it's at the time of an administration shift. So at the moment, the states, you know, have been working really hard to do this, like they have been over the last 24 months. And I think people are in a wait and see on the Fed level. But something from the Feds is coming relatively soon. I would say in the next six months, we'll get a lot more clarity on oh, that. Okay. But, you know, it's... 
that that piece is unknown. But I think if you're a startup, that is a huge opportunity to call one of those offices, particularly if it's in a state you're operating out of. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, these big companies like uh, one large automaker, seeing that there was a vacuum of very little policy yet, they wrote a boilerplate policy that really benefited only them and gave it to a particular state. And then what that, a surprise. And that state where they do a lot of business, I wouldn't say rubber stamped it, but, but pretty close. Yeah. And then from there, that, that automaker took it to other states and did the same thing. So you can either look at that as somewhat of a Machiavellian play by them, but also quite brilliant that they were able to say, like we said in the beginning of this question, there's so many people who have an interest in the topic, but there's not a lot of knowledge yet. Yeah. And so they kind of f- came in and filled that Boy, vacuum yeah, yeah. and said, well, you know, here's, here's this. Why don't yeah. you take a look at it? It's, yeah. it's pretty decent. And the, and the <laughs> folks who are enacting the policies, they, they're trying to do their best. They just, but this is someone who's actually providing information in a very formal way and it's structured well. And yeah. you know, it probably makes sense at the, at a high level, you know, yeah. it's also a signal about how much, pol- how many laws in our country probably started from the desk of a for-profit company totally. that then get f- fed to a lawmaker and you know i mean not the, the core fundamentals of our country but a lot of the laws in the books start that way yeah and in in autonomous vehicles right now that's definitely the case that a lot of it you can see coming from one particular organization doesn't necessarily mean it's bad I'm just saying the origin of it yeah. is pretty curious that i mean it happens in oil and gas that happens to technology it happens everywhere what the this other thing that other kind of risky flag was selling to the big provide you know the mm-hmm. big OEMs or big big companies like how do you help the the startups manage that? It's gotten a lot easier over the last twenty four months where so many of the automakers and suppliers have an office in either you know San Francisco area or Los Angeles or wow, Boston. I didn't know that really? Oh yeah, so it's easier to get a POC, a proof of concept kind of contract, whereas. A couple years back, if a founder said, I've got Audi that's going to give me a POC for this, you'd think, wow, like these are these are incredibly hardworking people to have achieved that already. And now it's more typical that a couple people with an idea can spin up a very early prototype, get a couple of POCs from a supplier or two and an automaker and then go and, and try to fundraise around it. I think it's less impressive to have that um, notch in your belt yeah. at the moment, just because the the big people, the big players have moved so quickly to yeah. want to work with startups. Yeah. Not to say that they're great at it, but that's more of a fluid environment. Yeah. So it's still hard to move through. You know, autos you have, there's these kind of three fundamental areas. There's really the R&D, and then when ideas graduate from R&D, they go to what's known as advanced engineering and then they graduate to production. Yeah. And that whole time frame, if you're working on a really hard technology, can be a really long period yeah. of time, right? Yeah. You're talking years. So getting an early sort of window into the R&D budgets, that's an achievement and should not be, I think should, people should be given credit for that. But then there's a, you're at like base camp one of Everest, right? <laughs> and then you have a lot, you have a long yeah. way to go. I, I think there's a ton of value there. And the automakers are getting a little bit faster in working on this stuff. But 
it's you're in the early stages when you get to that yeah, first level yeah. achievement. And I think the way to do it, you know, there's a lot of founders who, you know, maybe are technology um, savvy. They don't know how to sell into the supply chain. And what typically happens is nine months into their existence, then they're like, we need somebody who sold into this environment before. And they like pick off a salesperson who used to work at, you know, Red Bend or Renesis or one of these like tier two suppliers mm-hmm. or something who's been selling into these people for yeah. years. That's an interesting model to do. Is that person, the? can they get a good enough person? I guess that's always the danger, right? It's like, tough because yeah. that's, you're typically, you know, at a, at a supplier or tier, tier one or two supplier, that's like a 300K person yeah. with benefits, you know, who's a rainmaker salesperson. And their likelihood of them joining a startup to make 75K kind of so-so benefits. Totally. It's a difficult it's, it's conversation. Hard. It's hard. Yeah. So I don't see them necessarily getting the sort of top performer, but they can get somebody really young on the come, and that that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. But if, you're a, if you have experience in sales within the automotive supply chain right now, you could have almost your pick of some fantastic transportation wow. startups that are growing really fast where you would be wise to take that bet yeah. on one of them. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's exciting. That's, it's also an exciting moment. I always compare what's happening in transportation to like my experience in the late nineties in technology and internet stuff. Cause it's, it's not exactly the same, but it's analogous in the excite. And there was that leading up, I would say, what do you think we're in like 1995 right now mm-hmm. relative to like the 99 mm-hmm. boom and things like, I don't know. That's my opinion, but it feels I think it's like more like 93. Yeah, it, I, seriously, it could be right. Yeah. But I, I remember being like reading about things like eBay when I was in college and being like, oh, that that makes a lot of sense or right. Yahoo. And you're like, yeah. and it feels like I'm reading about the the first wave of the transportation companies right now. And there's still the, the, the big guys are still out there, but there's there's so much energy. There's a lot of energy. This. A lot of it, particularly around automated vehicles is just simply getting to the task of let's make sure this this thing can navigate safely and not hit anyone. That yeah. That's job one yeah. of a lot of these companies. And I think, so a lot of the automakers and a lot of the announcements are around this time frame of 2020, 2021. And we're getting to the point where, so we're that's not too far away, but yeah, I was going to say, it's like three or four <laughs> so, years, so that's right? That's pretty close. And I think a lot of the CEOs that made those pronouncements probably think, well, I'll probably be retired in Boca Raton by then, so I'll let the next person deal with it. (laughs) Nevertheless, that's coming soon. I think that the first wave of this is a lot of just focusing on the the dynamics around, is the vehicle actually safe to operate? The really interesting thing in my mind is once you start deploying those cars and you can learn a lot about what the consumer really wants, in my view... There's probably a brand new company that starts after we get to this first sort of threshold of more or less 98, 99% accuracy on, on the driving piece mm-hmm. that then figures out some more sophisticated things like, you know, when the vehicle pulls up to the curb, it should completely sit flush with the curb height so that no one trips getting in and out of mm-hmm. the car and, you know, the way the doors are designed so it's really easy to get in and out, which will help lower the dwell times to get in and out of the vehicle and the payment process and those things which are you can only learn when you get to deploying the vehicles yeah, yeah. that's why some of these companies google being one of them autonomy is another that are trying to do really two things at once they're 
getting more competent at the driving decision-making task while also deploying a small fleet, small and growing fleet of vehicles where they can start to pick up these insights. Yeah. Because there's so many people that are just working on the driving decision piece. There's at least, you know, 12 companies working on that, that you have to, I think the deployment consumer facing piece of it is actually where the real money is made, where you as a person, when you get out of the airport in a couple of years are going to have to make that decision. Like, do I want an Uber or a Newtonomy yeah. or a Waymo? Yeah. And like in, there's probably using that IT analogy, you're talking about like the amazon.com right. of the, of, you know, Amazon wasn't EMC. It wasn't NetApp. It wasn't, sure. you know, all the infrastructure. Or Lycos or. Like, yeah. yeah. So much infrastructure sits behind all sure. the kind of sites that we're used to working mm-hmm. with now, 20 years later that I remember all those infrastructure companies like ink to me and, sure. you know, and so there's, there's the infrastructure and then there's the stuff that's touching the consumers that the consumers are loving. But, Usually, ultimately, those consumer companies can be can become humongous. You know, the, th- the people who get that stuff right. Yeah, that's what I, I believe the the fundamental principle of this whole thing is trust. So that's why it's so curious to me when you see Uber behaving in the way it's behaved internally yeah. and, and somewhat and sometimes externally. It's just pragmatic to be a trustful company. And it, that, that just makes total sense to me. Yeah. So everything you do should be about trust. Every single touch point of the company, the communications, the CEO, even the colors of the brand. I think that is the, the truly valuable companies in the autonomous vehicle age are going to be the trustworthy companies. Yeah. And if you think back, there was a, during the last recession, uh, Ford Motor Company had a bunch of brands they had owned. And they sold a bunch of them off because the way that the economy was headed, they needed to really consolidate. And they sold Volvo for a billion and a half dollars, which was uh, unbelievable. Volvo is still one of the top 10 most trusted brands. It's right up there with Johnson & Johnson and Disney in terms of trust for a consumer. You literally, uh, there are companies trying to build autonomous vehicles with zero brand that, that are raising almost that much money. And the whole Volvo brand for that much is just insane, insane, insane. So you, so you write an amazing newsletter every Sunday night and uh-huh. if people don't know it, they can go to trucks.vc and sign yep. up. Yep. So I've been subscribing for like two or three years. It's been awesome. But you've mentioned this a couple different times and like, I wish you could see me sitting on my couch at mm-hmm. like nine o'clock on a Sunday night. Cause I'm nodding vigorously. Well, imagine that. Imagine the, the people at Ford who read that oh, too, God. Who either probably agreed or disagreed with that decision. Or the people at Geely who bought Volvo for a billion and a half dollars who are wisely not. God, God bless them. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it was such a smart purchase. It's like, you're exactly right. And like Google is trusted. Amazon's trust. You know, like that analogy mm-hmm. carries through our whole economy. Like At the time, however, the what was happening in automotive safety, for the longest time, Volvo meant safety. Yeah. And still does to some extent. And at the time, safety seemed to be permeating everything, where the notion of the safest car kind of had become a me too thing where everybody had a relatively safe yeah. car even the mo- even the the least safe car in the sort of late 90s period was pretty damn good yeah. airbags yeah. crash rating so the whole idea of what we thought Volvo's USP was maybe in the 70s and 80s just seemed to be peanut buttered over all these other brands. Yeah. So you, if you were sitting in a boardroom in the late 90s thinking like, do we really need this thing? Yeah, we got to we got to raise some cash. 
you can see how one would, would get to that conclusion without having the foresight of uh, when vehicles become robotic, we're at the brand nature of this whole thing is gonna be drastically more important. Totally. And that's why if you think about some of, like even Chevy is a super trustworthy brand yeah. for a lot of people, uh, GM's ignition switch issue aside, the, the brands sometimes that are maybe even more on the consumer sort of side that are not premium sometimes have a better brand yeah. character for trust. So it's a, it's a really interesting space going forward. I'm a total consumer. I, I know almost nothing about your industry, right? But like in the Fast and Furious, when the last Fast and Furious, where they hijacked all the cars and the cars are going all over. And it's like, that's a mass market movie. Everyone sees that. And it's like, whoa, a lot could go wrong with autonomous mm. cars. Mm. Right. I really hope when I get an autonomous car, it's trusted. I feel safe in it. Like these are the kind of things, like very kind of primal things that people think about. Now, that's why I think that Volvo example is such a good example. Or, like, I trust Ford. I trust Chevy. Like, I actually sure. trust Tesla right. because they're, I think, the act of putting all these videos out on the Internet when they're showing the autonomous vehicle stuff going is is slowly building trust in their engineering. Like, I really like that. I think that's a For really smart way to For some consumers, that that is the way to their to their heart, right? Yeah. And I think an even more interesting question would be for them or even a startup what are the ways that people actually start to perceive trust and could you then build a strategy around that yeah for some people you know for some people of a certain generation it was just that it was beat to your head through broadcast medium advertising and seeing billboards and print ads and things like that so a lot of what volvo did was very good about explaining that they were a really safe company and for a, a huge group of users, they'll they'll always think of them that way. Yeah. And then to your point, there's a bunch of new brands that communicate this in a much uh, radically different way, which is that we're going to show you our process. Yeah. We're going to send videos out and we're going to make you believe that we're actively working on this. Yeah. And that, therefore, is going to make you trust us. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways to get there. I also think it's interesting if you're thinking about volvo getting sold for a billion and a half I actually don't think it's that bad of an idea for somebody to just try to rebuy volvo for 15 billion dollars yeah you know 10x what they sold it yeah. for explain to me mr executive how you plan on getting the equivalent of, of volvo value for for less than let's call it 15 billion it would be really really interesting if somebody could prove to you they could do that because i don't think you can yeah and i think volvo is still a still probably a well-bought company. How much would you have to pay and how long would it take you to build that brand and take forever? Yeah. yeah. So we talked about the energy around transportation, around autonomous vehicles. And a lot of people don't know that you're a lecturer at Stanford. Yep. Like, what are you, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that energy? Like, what's it like? hundred percent. The, at Stanford, there are a couple different really great organizations that uh, do a lot of sponsorship of classes and support research projects. One is called CARS, the Center for Automotive Research at Stanford. Another is called REVS. And uh, at Stanford over the last, certainly over the last 10 years, but specifically over the last five, the enthusiasm for working on transportation is just fantastic. So a ton of engineers are building autonomous vehicles in the labs of professors like Gertie's and Kockendorfer and, and really amazing experts. And then on the GSB, on the business side, oh, you have yeah. a ton of students coming in. So, you know, I've been uh, teaching or co-teaching for the last uh, four or five years. And just 
over that time, it seems like every year there's both more students and then their rabid hunger for wanting to do stuff. And also just people you didn't think, you know, who actually say, when I got to Stanford, I didn't think I was going to do this. I thought I was going to go into healthcare or maybe wanted to work at Facebook. And now I really want to work at Zooks or I really want to work at Waymo. That, that's, that happens all the time. Wow. And so I think that's pretty neat because there's a lot more smart people going into the industry. Yeah. There's also a lot more women that are going into transportation, whereas before autos used to be typically the domain of, you know, really it was a heavily male dominated industry and still is at the executive ranks. Um, but from at, at the Stanford level, you have a ton of really smart women that are going into the auto space now. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and what is, what is this, you're a humble guy, but talk about what that does for you. Like from it, you must wake up every day and you're like, I get to be around these really smart, energetic sure. students. And like, you're, yeah. you're also seeing the future probably a little bit. Like, yeah. What's I mean, it like? well, I mean, Stanford students have, uh, I believe that almost every single one of them feels lucky to be there. There's a really interesting quality to the Stanford students that I interact with, which is that they, I believe all feel like at any one time, someone's going to grab them by the scruff of the neck. Like <laughs> we figured you out McGill again, yeah. you're out of here. And, uh, and so because of that, I, I just find that they're, they work really hard and they're happy to be there, uh, which is a great quality. So, um, I think that's somewhat counter to how the world at large perceives quote unquote Silicon Valley, whether it's, you're talking about the TV show or just the overall yeah. idea of Silicon Valley seems to be, you know, I'm going to, say something like somewhat pejorative but I think there's a feeling that those people haven't earned it and I find that when I go to Stanford and I interact with students they're they work really hard and they're happy to be there yeah right so to answer your question I think that I love the balance of university and industry you know and one of my mentors at Stanford is a guy named David Kelly who started IDEO and he also started the Stanford D school and we're lucky enough I'm lucky enough to teach with David one of my classes and he told me years back that that was one of the things that he thought was really great about his life was he could go to IDEO and interact with some really interesting clients and his employees. And then he could go to Stanford and interact with really interesting students. And that sort of that balance of the two is really quite fun. Yeah. So I, he was right. <laughs> I, I totally get that because I had the same thing where I'm interacting with a lot of startup CEOs who are really fun, challenging people, sometimes good, sometimes bad challenges to deal with, but you learn so much from them. And then we have a team at Cruise that's like all really smart people or accounts in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like yeah. the, the ups and downs sure. of seeing like young people grow and it's so satisfying. And then there's also challenges that come with that. And yeah. it's, it's probably the same thing for you, but it's yeah. like, it really, it really is as I live my life more, and as I get older, I realize that's, that's the important stuff. You know, those, those relationship you build or the mentoring you do. And there's going to be students that you've mentored that are going to come out and start the next, you know, billion dollar company and have a hire a ton of people and improve lives across the spectrum. You know, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing, other thing is I truly learn from, I mean, I think one of the core, one of the really fun things about venture is that you get to, if you, if you care about this part of it, I think one of the best parts is that you get to learn from, really interesting crazy people right and there's some people get into it for different reasons but you know we start our partner meetings every partner meeting starts with 
with learning. So we go around the table and we talk about stuff we've learned over the last couple of days. And sometimes it's specific to a deal we're working on, but sometimes it's really tangential. And I think that's also when we talked about the newsletter um, that you read. For me, that's a learning mechanism where this space of automated vehicles is so busy at the moment yeah. that I don't have the ability to make sense of it unless I do some sort of mental digestion around it. And my form of learning that's preferred is I like to write something about it. Yeah. And so that's what that's all about. And the exposure to Stanford students too, for me is like, that is hundred percent. I get to learn from their worldview. Their questions in class are much better than my questions, yeah. things like that. That's why I do the podcast. Actually, it scratches. I used to tell people when I was at lighthouse, I would spend an hour with the expert in the world at whatever they were doing. And it wasn't just they're the most knowledgeable, but they're the most passionate. And that's like, that's really fun, you know? Yeah. And so actually the podcast scratches that itch for me where yeah. I get to meet, I get to meet you. Like you are probably the best early stage VC in transportation. And I get to spend, that's like a real, by the way, that's a really small hill <laughs> with not a lot of people on it. <laughs> that's like, there's left enough people to make it slow pitch softball no, expert. It. Um, it. But it's funny, you know, when, when I was, you know, Ed Aiton introduced us. And when I started to putting together the idea for the fund, um, I didn't, you know, venture is one of those industries where there's not a lot of easy ways to kind of break in. There's a lot of interesting jargon, which seems very intimidating. Um, and you were the, one of the first persons that helped me through that. I didn't have anybody that I could ask just stupid questions about like, what is, what does this really mean? And how does that work? And, there, there weren't a lot of people that would, that offered themselves up and you were really the one person I could call. Oh, thanks, I remember those early meetings we had either over the phone or, or in San Francisco about that, which I'm for, which I'm eternally grateful. And also for Ed Ayton who met you just at a bar in Austin one day. So it all goes back to that one moment. Thank, thank goodness for Ed's uh, yeah. drinking uh, appetite. No, you're, you're being too kind. And, you know, the funny thing is, I'm sure you feel this way when you see the CEOs you're working with or are going to invest in or even the students you're working with. When I met, I remember meeting you vividly. And I, mean, I remember asking you like two or three questions. It was like not even a lot of questions. It was like, I was like, Riley, what do you do? Like, what's your normal day? And you're like, oh, my normal day is at Stanford and I'm, mm -hmm. you know, helping a lot of students and then we also are building prototypes and all this kind of stuff and yeah i invest in some of these companies once in a while and i'm like well how many have you invested in i don't even, i forget the number yeah. it was a substantial amount of companies and i was like so you already have the investment track record you already enjoy doing the mentoring it was like yeah you just needed you just needed someone to be like hey you should do this yeah. you know as, as simple and it's not like i i did all i did was sit there and listen to you like it's so i'm sure you feel the same way like you see people who are so ready to pursue their dream and you know they're going to be amazing at it. And if yeah, you need a few a encouraging of, words yeah, help, exactly. then that's great. But yeah. like you were the guy, you did, you were going to make it happen no matter what. Yeah, thanks, so, man. Yeah. Starting your own fund is actually really hard. Like really hard. So you're, I always admire people who start their own funds because you're not just the challenge of being a venture capitalist and, and making smart investments and meeting tons of startups and things like that, but you're actually running a startup yourself. Sure. Like, Maybe starting a fund was the hardest thing I've ever done business wise in my life. Yeah. Talk a and, little bit about uh, that. Just because so many people in finance are bad, have bad behavior <laughs> and the way that they tell you no is really atrocious. So, uh, you know, the majority of the people, particularly when you raise a first time fund, the majority of the people 
will tell you no in a way that makes you feel not only no, you receive their information, but also that you really question yourself that yeah. you should you even be doing this. And um, so one couple key things happened for us early on. Our first commit was a guy named Sam Valenti in Detroit and um, really a master of venture and uh, mentor. And he committed first, which was really great because it was just at least kind of like your words to me, a little bit of a nudge to keep going. And but then we had a lot of people who were really, who made it difficult for us. And I remember some of the early discussions, one person was like, you know, I think you're, I think this autonomous vehicle thing is at 2030 or 2040, you're too early for this. And I was like, well, I am an early, this is an early stage fund. So <laughs> it has to be early. It, it, by definition, it has to be early. Um, and then when we were fundraising, I remember somebody said, uh, I think you're too late, you know? And I think then Jeff and Kate and I just thought, this has got to be the perfect timing if we are getting both of these responses. And we were a little bit ahead of the market because, you know, something, some crazy acquisition things have happened in the auto space in the last 12 months. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of room to run and it's interesting fundraising against a market that's growing. Also, I think a lot of people, because our fund covers transportation, I think there's a belief from some investors that what they call single purpose funds have too narrow of a focus. So, you know, you've seen funds in the past, like, oh, we're the fund that's only going to focus on apps within the Facebook economy. And things are fairly specific, you know, transportation, depending on how you cut it is the world's second largest industry behind the arms business or, or healthcare, depending on how you define it. So it, we believe it's actually somewhat a misnomer to call it a one market. Yeah. And we, you know, that's why we built it. Yeah. But and the cool thing is it's a it's you know, you're I don't know how old you are, you're like thirty five or whatever, but you're gonna be doing this for like twenty five more years. And this the cool thing about this market is it's got twenty five years at least well, to run. People right? will like, always want to move yeah. around, right? So it's one of the fundamental things we do in life yeah. is we eat, yeah. you know, we wanna move around. It's just a core part of, of life. And it's been there's been a huge companies built, but most of the early value if you were an early stage investor in a lot of those companies from an automaker perspective happened 75 years ago at the supplier level happened 30 40 years ago so this is just another big opportunity where a lot of change is happening and if you can get good at assessing the risk there's a lot of value that's getting created right now yeah. that's why you want to invest right yeah. now and also i think right now is not a great time to be a late stage investor in this space at the moment i think in a couple of years it will be more interesting unless you're into ride sharing where there's a lot of late stage deals um, right now, the, the core really part of the market is in seed and series a, and that might change a little yeah. bit. What are some of the technologies or like a sec sector within transportation that you're like crazy about right now? One of the underdeveloped areas is what we would call driver monitoring. So a lot of these sensor companies that have made a lot of big, press announcements are really sensors that are focused outside the vehicle, you know, sending laser beams out to really make a 3D map of what's going yeah. on around your car. And that's useful. And we have some investments in that space, but inside the vehicle is actually super interesting. And there's not a lot of people focused on that yet. Part of it is a cultural thing with, there's a belief that people don't want any of these sensors in their personal space of the cabin inside a vehicle. 
But as, as you move to automating the vehicle, you need to have a handshake of some sort with the user mm -hmm. if they're going to be taking their eyes or their hand off the road, even temporarily. So I think that the car in the future is going to, and not even in the future today, there's some companies that have deployed these, knowing a little bit more about you sitting there. So what I say um, is that, you know, the urinal, the men's bathroom knows more about me than, you know, the most recent, you know, pick a name brand car manufacturer they really don't know if you're there in the car yeah. if you're paying attention yeah. and uh that's going to change so there's a couple ways you can do that you can do it through um you know cameras point at the driver if they're holding onto the wheel if they're sitting in the seat some people are trying to you know build a sensor in the dome light to look down things like that and, and that's you, more interesting. And I'm sorry, I think you said that there's some people who don't think that's going to be valuable, but that seems crazy to me because. Well, I just think it's been undervalued. Yeah. And okay, a yeah. lot of the, a lot of the companies, like there's a, there are a lot more companies working on sensing around the vehicle for accident avoidance. Yeah, I've definitely heard. Than, than inside. And, uh, but there are some like, you know, two interesting examples are, um, you know, Zendrive sits on a phone and through the the sensors on a phone can pick up things like acceleration yeah. braking um actually can make a fingerprint of a lane on a road just by the no vibrations way. in the in the phone and can also you know know about distraction how much the you know if you're kind of looking at your phone and things like that and that's a just the the use like be, be able to match that with distraction and then being able to say this particular intersection at this time of day has a lot of accidents and there's a lot of distraction going on. Therefore, if you're a bicyclist or you're another driver, um, you shouldn't be driving near those people. Yeah. Or from a risk perspective, if you can avoid those areas, we'll give you a cheaper policy momentarily, yeah. things like that. That's or maybe there's something you can do with the lights or, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think that's fascinating because human beings especially on the internet have proven over and over again that they're willing to trade kind of privacy yeah. for better yeah. service sure. you use insights. google maps and you yeah. know that they know where you are yeah. but you also get the benefit of getting to your location on yeah. time and getting that traffic benefit things yeah. like that so that that's exactly the point and unfortunately the automakers have not done a great job of leading people into that kind of a relationship so one one concern going back to our regulatory point is that there might be a moment in time here after perhaps an, uh, an event or maybe just the regulators uh, changing their mind that vehicles that deploy these kind of level two level three systems kind of what you would describe as the tesla autopilot that they might be forced into having some sort of driver monitoring piece before you're allowed to deploy them and if you don't warm the consumer up to that benefit of why that this has to take place then they might truly hate those systems so um it would be it would really be wise if the industry realized that driver monitoring is going to become a part of the deal in these semi-automated vehicles therefore we have to start explaining to them now yeah well you're going to give this up we're going to get this other benefit, yeah. and that's really cool. Yeah. Well, countries like our companies like Metro Mile and some of these other ones that are like, I think it's really smart. They're pricing based on your behavior, or how far you're driving, yeah. things like that. That's that's another example of that. But that that's that seems like a no brainer. It, it, as a consumer, it's super exciting to me. Now, of course, I'm not like 
doing anything crazy in my car or anything weird. So I don't really care if people are monitoring me or whatever. Yeah. And I'm, a, I'm trying to be a good driver. So it's well, also, think, you have the cultural, you have a cultural belief that your experiences with those services in the past have only benefited you. Exactly. That's and, the key thing. you know, yeah. this is going back to our discussion about Volvo too. And what trust means, you know, there's a, there's different kinds of people who would answer this question really differently. Right. Yeah. And so if imagine if you're a large scale automaker that sells vehicles, not only to Scott Orn, but Scott Orn's aunt in Elko, Nevada yeah. and communicating that across, that's a really difficult it challenge. Is, it is. Yeah. I'm, I actually am processing that state. Cause it's so, cause I think it takes me back to like the Facebook Google stuff of most kind of maybe older people don't even know that Facebook and Google are watching everything you do, you know, maybe nowadays, maybe 2017 they do, maybe in 2012 they didn't, but it's, there's, there's this kind of adoption curve and realization curve that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and we are every day believe, you know, we have a belief system about the benefits we get from that. Yeah. And I think technology is one of those things where the more you use it, the clearly the more you use it, the more benefit you get from it. Yeah. It's kind of like one of those things, like using a new calendar app, you kind of have to turn your life over to it to really get the true value of the yeah. product. Yeah. Um, and not a lot of consumer life is the same thing. You know, you can kind of go in and taste a TV show for a little bit or something like that. And technology tends to be this swallowing yeah. kind of behavior where you have to have the whole thing yeah. before you're like, oh, I get why this particular thing is great for yeah. me and why I sold the one car to only use Uber. Yeah. You know, so that is a cultural value that some people do have and yeah. some don't. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, you got, you have, like you said, there's times where I've turned over my calendar to some new app and it totally bonks and I'm like, Oh, that was stupid. Right, you know, so, right. so it happens. There's one, one other kind of transportation question I have is Vanessa and I were talking about this the other day of like, do we think, do you, this is like, transportation efficiency affecting other industries like is real estate going to be less valuable in the cities and more valuable in the suburbs or mm -hmm. and and but this is like the simplest example but Vanessa was like you know what do you like do you think someday someone's going to create like services to be done inside of a car like because you're say you're commuting from Tracy to San Francisco, right? It's so much easier to do that in an autonomous vehicle. And then you have so much extra time, right? Like how do you think about this kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, it's hard to be a real estate speculator on that because there are arguments either way about, yeah. you can live as far as you want or, but there's also a lot of evidence that, you know, just humans like being around others yeah. and as cities become a little bit more livable. I think great cities are still going to be great, even yeah. with the opportunity to drive and work on your on your commute. But the small changes, if you think about even just the way food was packaged and the changes in giving people like you know a drive in a drive a drive in window yeah. and things like that, and or takeout window, and packaging food you know in a vertical fashion so you can eat it in one hand. Little things like those are kind of what we were talking about earlier about. When you deploy autonomous vehicles, then you learn things like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the things around services are probably the same way, uh, but it's really difficult to handicap which ones are going to become more efficient for yeah. people. I know that the working piece is a real thing. If people can get comfortable working in an autonomous vehicle, then the workspace environment for 
AV is super fascinating. So um, that's why I think, although now we don't see them thinking about this a lot, a company like Microsoft um, or Slack or Box or the kind of enterprise stuff that people use every day, Gmail, of course, um, becomes really an interesting space to think about. People might not choose to only work in their vehicle, but if you move the entire fleet of vehicles in the U.S. to working, that extra commute time when they're just driving right now, you add a Chicago to the U.S. economy. Wow. So like that many hours. That many productivity And you hours. might, you would probably redesign the whole cab and, you know, yeah, that's the kind of stuff. It's just like, I think what you're doing is so interesting because it not only, not only does it affect like kind of pure transportation as we think about it today, but it has all these side benefits yeah. of like just changing society, changing culture. It's really cool. Yeah. It would be difficult to know. I mean, I think some people will go out of business or become really wealthy by betting on parking lots right now because people are trying to answer this yeah. question for you. Um, and it's unknown at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Maybe Scott. tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, and so about your newsletter. Uh, trucks.vc, uh, you can get the newsletter and see some of our portfolio companies. Yeah. And uh, on Twitter at uh, number one Scott fan. <laughs> no, at, at Riley Brennan. Uh, and thanks so much for having me on. Ah, my pleasure. Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate it.